all right okay uh hello and welcome everyone to this particular podcast today we have with us dr hani sadgi she is a senior research scientist at google brain working on research problems related to understanding and improving deep learning techniques she works on designing algorithms with theoretical guarantees such that they can work efficiently in real world scenarios Prior to that she was a research scientist at Allen AI and before that she was a postdoctoral fellow at UC Irvine. She graduated from USC with a PhD with minors in mathematics. Um uh, thanks a lot for being here Dr. Sadgi and uh, I I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks thank you for having me excited to have this chat with you. Right. To so so in order to understand more about your research interests can you tell us uh, a bit about what kind of projects you are working at currently at Google Brain and what is the what is the impact that you are trying to uh, create using those uh, research problems Sure so I've been working on understanding and improving deep learning for the last give or take 7 years and um and i believe like my approach has really been to be in the intersection of theory and practice and like remove the gap or reduce the gap as much as possible and i think there's been great progress in deep learning but and and our understanding has been really lagging behind our practical success and this growing gap really makes some um obstacle to go beyond uh, this current use of deep learning and like extend its use um to re- in to other domains in a reliable way because we have less um information available to us and i believe bridging this gap would help us extend the current use of deep learning to new domains in a reliable way um and i've been uh, leading this team called deep phenomena at google brain which is a group of people with similar uh, interests and agenda working together and um my main focus has been generalization and even more recently out of distribution generalization and also try to understand this uh, large models that we use in practice and and um try to investigate what's missing how can we improve them and so on right yeah that seems interesting and and so so before we go into the depth of your research problems specific can you tell us a bit about your entry point like how did you get started how did you get intrigued about deep learning research and in specific to understanding the theory behind like not just applied uh areas of deep learning research but understanding the fundamentals and theory behind the deep learning sure so my background is machine learning theory and um and at the time deep learning really started to come back i was working on non convex optimization methods and of course it's really intriguing that like uh, training a deep network is a highly non convex problem and so of course i got intrigued about it and i'm really interested in solving puzzles um so that was the um and i realized that a lot of people are thinking about deep learning and i was like okay what is this new thing that everyone is interested in and then of course the type of questions i asked was really um inspired by the type of angle that i have on uh problems and this has uh, grown over the years um an interesting story was that my first um uh, workshop paper in deep learning was at nurif 2814 deep learning workshop and i had this work on provable methods for training neural networks with sparse connectivity and a lot of people stopped and asked what does provable mean <laughs> and and then i had a follow up work submitted to nurips which essentially extend this to shallow neural networks not just sparse like general uh, things and the status story was that one of the feedbacks like one of the reviews we got was that we don't need theory in deep learning i asked ac that for sake of community reject this paper which at the time I was a junior researcher hit me hard but I'm glad that as a field we've come this long way that now we have like deep learning theory tracks and also the gap between theory and practice is really shrinking which is great yeah yeah and this brings me to a question is uh, before we before we need to get into the details of few of the terms is how does like like you said most of the people this is only some time back that even reviewers rejected this particular idea of focusing on theory of deep learning so in in a, in a very birds view angle how can you uh, explain that how does the understanding of theory of these machine learning techniques help us uh, in whatsoever sense be it application related or in general from a developer's perspective or just from a theory like developing much more efficient algorithms if 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 
if you were to explain me or someone who doesn't know about the theory, who just understands, okay, it's just an import function in Python to just do these kind of things. How do you explain that? So first I want to mention that like theory means a broad range of things as long as we really try to understand something, whether it's complete phenomenal investigation or like complete theoretical, like complete math, mathematical proofs, I call these all theory, as long as we're really trying to understand what's going on. And the real bird's view, if we understand the different pieces of what is making a machine work, then we could, and what parts are missing, then it would make it much easier to make that better um, and like have more handles on it. I see. I see. Interesting. And, and and also one thing, like tying two of the points that you mentioned is you really like solving puzzles that you said uh, along these uh, deep learning techniques. And like you said, there are multiple components that makes a deep learning model. So in terms of uh, understanding the theory, do you have any kind of still and puzzling thing that you find interesting that really works, but you don't have a very clear explanation that, hey, I don't know how this works, but this just works perfectly well in a deep learning model. Do you have any kind of puzzling thing that over the time you have realized you do not have a theoretical proof or a guarantee that you have for it. But surprisingly, in most of the cases that we use deep learning models, it just works perfectly fine. Do you have any kind of special component of a deep learning model? So I really look at interplay between data, training algorithm, and architecture. I don't really look at them in isolation. But I think the fact that deep learning generalizes this well is something that is still intriguing for a lot of for a lot of people and I, and um, as we make the problems more and more complex of course we're finding the places where we have failure modes of deep learning but still this um, this generalization in terms of pattern recognition part is is an interesting thing and like trying to understand um, what really makes things work so for example early on we were thinking about we really need to implement some biases in our architectures. However, these days we're seeing that if you add a lot of data, the model is able, and if model has enough capacity, it's able to capture those biases. So I think as a field, we keep moving forward and we see interesting things that we didn't think would happen. Interesting. And and I have one other question that I normally tend to ask most of the speakers. And I think this is uh, kind of interesting to ask you is, uh, what motivates you for these projects? Do the uh, app, app, like exploration of what is the theoretical background to a particular working, that really uh, intrigues you to solve a particular problem? Or is it the application that, okay, if I solve this theoretical problem, then it can actually aid a particular application. In your choice of working on projects, what motivates you more? The application behind it or the theory exploration that you can do uh, for, the, for those problems? Um, so I really don't focus on a really specific application. I try to be application agnostic and work on methods that work for a wide range of applications. But what really motivates me is that, first of all, what question I find interesting, because if as a researcher, we don't find something interesting, then it's like it, we wouldn't really make progress on it. And the second yeah. thing is that if I solve this problem, how much it's going to help the community or people. Um, and um, so that's what really motivates me. Um, yeah. I then see, the tools are secondary. Like once I figure, <laughs> okay, this is the problem I'm interested in, then I'll figure out how to solve it. But I think the part that is the exciting part is that like this problem that is interesting for me and like, I want to solve it. Right. And, and jumping onto a few of the specific questions that are related to more of your research works and that I, I did some homework and digging on is, can you explain uh, the terms over-parameterizations over and generalization in deep learning models? Like these are the terms I think most of the people who only work on the backbone of deep learning models really understand and really play along with, but not a lot of people from the applied applied domains really work on. But can you explain more, like what do these mean and what are the significance of understanding these two uh, terms in deep learning models? Sure, so let me start with the over-parameterization. So essentially in classical setting, we have we think about this um, overfitting phenomenon, meaning that as you keep getting better and better on your, learning your training data, then your test data starts to getting better, but then it starts to get worse because you're getting to a memorization regime. 
then as you keep increasing the capacity of your model, what happens is that then like this, there's this, what we call it, this double descent phenomena that the test was getting worse, but then now it starts getting better. And this happens after you completely fit your training data, which we call interpolation regime, where, it's where you have like 100% accuracy on training. And beyond this point is where we call it over-parameterization, where you have fit the training data, but as you keep training and as you keep increasing your capacity, your test accuracy is getting better or your essentially your test area is getting um, smaller. Um, so this is what we mean by over-parameterization. And, um, and like generalization, essentially, it, it's a really big, like really broad term, but in very basic ML is that you train your model on training data. It doesn't see test data. If it works well on training data and if it works well on test data, this is what we call generalization. So it generalizes from whatever it learned from training data to some test data that it hasn't seen. And then the distribution can be the same, which is the in-domain case, or it can be different, which we call it out of distribution generalization. I see, I see. And in, in this particular scenario, because from what I naively understand is over-parameterization could be uh, really bad in terms of uh, like doing over-parameterization, like are there any benefits to doing that or is it bad? Because I think we are just surpassing the boundary of overfitting a model, right? So we are going into that territory. Are there any benefits? Because there are lots of, I think, uh, discussions that say over-parameterization over can lead to generalizations or vice versa. Like, do you have any insights on that? Like, is it true? Is it false? Or is it something that's, that really needs to be understood on a subjective basis? Right. So, yeah, I can tell you about it. So there is this understanding that we have as a community because of the long list of papers that work on it, that essentially we are doing some implicit regularization. So SGD is doing some implicit regularization when we are training it on the um, empirical uh, race. And, and so some sort of norm is being implicitly regularized and made it smaller. When you over-parameterize, you're essentially um, making your network bigger so the solution space become bigger. And now it's possible to find a smaller norm solutions, whatever that norm is. So because of that, and this essentially means better generalization because you're minimizing that norm that really relates to generalization. So the advantage of parameterization, as I talked about it, is better generalization. It makes your optimization easier because the loss landscape becomes nicer. And also it, it gives us a more robust solution. The downside or disadvantage is that you have higher training time, you need a lot more memory, and also it takes longer to do the inference. I see, I see, I see. And so would you would you suggest that doing over-parameterization would be on a subject-to-subject -subject basis, right? So it would be application or dependent. So in certain cases, you would want uh, to use a big model or a large like large parameter model, even if the uh, data set is small, or maybe I would say, uh, I would say generalizability is achieved, but would you, would you in, in cases, in what cases would you say over-parameterization over would have any negative effects? As in, uh, it, it hurts the uh, idea of using that deep learning model on that application. I think you really need to think about your um, restrictions that you have either on training time or memory or inference time. If you, if you have a really small memory and you really have no time, mm -hmm. then it takes time to train that over-parameterized model. So you can't really use that. So we really need to think about your budget. Mm -hmm. And and this brings me to a, a, a recent work that I think you published uh, on. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a conference paper or an ar ar archive uh, submission, but it, it really digs into the idea of using scale and transfer learning uh, techniques and how it, it, uh, it affects the upstream tasks versus downstream tasks and the relations between them. And uh, one of the, I think, one of the observations that uh, these applications show is that if you are trying to improve your up upstream task performances, you might actually saturate the performance on downstream tasks. So can you can you tell us a bit about the intuition that we learn from those experiments in this particular work? And what does it mean in terms of uh, using transfer learning? What things people can uh, derive or learn from that particular uh, research study when they are using transfer learning? And because I think like most of the people are trying to hint towards transfer learning as a potential way forward, right? Like they are trying to focus more on developing better pre-trained models and then using them rather than just 
training everything from scratch every time doing the reinventing the wheel or models or something like that so can you share some insights on intuition behind that and what can people learn from that study sure so this is yeah this is a recent work called exploring the limits of large scale pre-training and essentially the reason we looked into that is that we have this current impressive success in deep learning that is like clip um that essentially we use really big models and train on a lot of data and it seems it works well in for downstream tasks. And um, so it seems like that we are, as a community, we think that, okay, let's just keep increasing the scale, whether it's model size, data size and compute and get better pre-training performance, then it's just going to translate to better downstream performance. So this is what we question. Does this mean that as I keep just, let me just keep the scaling up, it's just going to give me a really good checkpoint, a trained, pre-trained model, and it's going to solve all my problems. So that's why we got, like, you're like, is this really the case? And the reason we looked into this was that there were some earlier analysis that said, yeah, this is the case. However, they were looking at really limited cases, limited case of um, hyperparameter tuning and limited accuracy range. So. We had access to um, about uh, um, 4,800 experiments that our different colleagues had trained these models and then we analyzed them and said, okay, is this the case? And for this, we looked into two big upstream data, which is JFT and also ImageNet 21K that is like available for everyone and looked at more than 20 downstream tasks and a variety of tasks like ImageNet, uh, ImageNet which is people usually use, metadata set, um, VTAB, medical imaging, VOLS data set. So we, like, we tried like to, whatever we found, we looked at it. And as you said, one thing we saw is that you do get saturation. But, uh, so we, this uh, part that we kept looking at was for different models, what is the downstream versus upstream performance that we could see? And then we feed a mathematical model to it. But what we see across the board, across all these variety of downstream is that as you keep increasing your upstream performance by increasing the scale, you hit a saturation point. And even if your accuracy reaches 100% on upstream, your downstream would stop well below that. And our mathematical model can exactly give you, okay, for this specific downstream, where would be the saturation point? So I think this is really important for us as a community that we can't just scale up everything and say, okay, you're done. This is this is this this is Oracle model that I found, and this is going to solve all your downstream tasks. And um, in addition to that, we poked into why this happens, and like it, by we uh, designed some experiments to look at different layers and put. Uh, I'm not going to get into like all the nitty gritty stuff, but essentially what we one takeaway we had is that if you really if you want to get better saturation point, you really want to look into having more diverse data in your upstream. So that's one thing. But even like for us, for practitioners, what one, uh, a couple of takeaways that we have, given like all these investigations in the paper, which I wouldn't get into uh, all of them, is that a lot of times practitioners, when they want to think about downstream performance, they have ImageNet or C410 or 100 and say, okay, I scaling up C400 or ImageNet is getting better. So this is a good model. But what we showed extensively in the paper is that different downstreams have different um, reactions to this. I mean, they all plateau or saturate, but some of them saturate much earlier than that. So even if we want to look find a, um, a checkpoint that is helpful, we need to look at really diverse set of downstream. So that's one thing. But And the other thing is that, yeah, of course, the scaling up will have to saturation. If I want to get into more details is that um, what it means for a community going forward is for many of these downstreams that are not well correlated with upstream, um, really top layers of these pre-trained networks are the ones that are useless for downstream. Because as we showed in our earlier works, lower layers are learning general features and top layers are learning features that are really specific to upstream. So the, what this means for us as a community is that we could change the way we fine tune or we could um, essentially 
discard these layers and do something else so that we could we could better leverage this data in the downstream. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, we really need to think about having diverse data for our upstream and also probe different downstream tasks when we are doing this. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about this result. And, um, yeah, yeah, not, about it. yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, it it's a very, uh, the, the thing that I liked about that particular study is you have a very nice way of at least, these I think uh, are much more of an intuition, most of the researchers that they try to understand, but this is much more like an empirical study that actually showcases the actual behind the scenes of what's happening and why things could saturate versus why things they cannot. And I'm curious about one question. I think you touched very briefly on that is um, the idea like, is there a way? I think these results definitely tell us uh, why uh, why they why the performances on downstream tasks might not improve versus uh, how they would saturate. But is there a uh, is there a way for us to learn more about the correlations between the upstream and downstream tasks? Meaning, in certain cases, these kind of scaling up can actually help versus in certain cases, like you said, you also tried downstream tasks on medical images where initially the pre-training was done on natural images. So is there a way for us to quantify that correlation that, hey, if it is not correlated by a certain amount, we shouldn't be using these things. But if it is, then, hey, we can just use that for better performances. And we are, we are under the assumption that hey, computation resources and time are not a factor uh, and those things. So I'm, I'm curious if there was any kind of observations you uh, saw over there on, on those notes. Sure. So one thing we did was in addition to looking at these experiments that other people had done, we did some controlled experiments where we specifically controlled for uh, model size, data size, and compute. And we see the similar pattern in, this, in terms of saturation and also in terms of the function that we see, which, which is good news. It means that we we did this so others don't need to do it yeah. in addition this mathematical model that we've uh, proposed we uh, we do analyze it in terms of robustness to number of samples in the paper and we see that you really don't need to have this giant number of samples in terms of trained networks to uh, really fit our mathematical model which is essentially a power law uh, that shows non-linearity and so so let's say you have a small number of networks that you've trained, you could use this um, model that you've proposed to be able to predict when does your downstream saturate. And, and that tells you, okay, and you know, and essentially what does it mean is that it predicts when does downstream, uh, like what is the saturation value of your downstream as a function of your upstream. And so mm -hmm. essentially you would know how much you need to spend money on to get your upstream to that value and then that that would mean okay that would be where your downstream is saturating so essentially like you have a handle on this function and you would you know have a handle of how much budget you have and based on that you could um essentially decide how much more you want to push as opposed to okay let's just push it to see what happens so you really now like have opened the box and you see what's going on um and so that that essentially helps you like that functional formal it helps you understand like where does this downstream, specific downstream that you're playing with uh, sit? Another thing I wanted to mention is that like, so for everyone, like for everyone, you understand, we all understand that, okay, medical imaging is very different from cats and dogs. We're very different from natural images. So we understand that it's going to saturate fast. However, an additional thing that we found was interesting was that it's not just the shape of the image that we as humans would understand. There is these data sets such as pets and cars, that they also saturate really fast. So the distribution of samples in this space of images is also something that is really important. And that's what we would only be able to see when we did this analysis. So what I'm saying is that humans are not enough to understand if this what is this correlation. Yeah, for medical images, it's easy, but when you get into the space of natural images, having this tool that we propose essentially helps you figure out what would be specific to this downstream? Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree to the last point. I think uh, one of the fundamental differences between natural images and um, medical images, because most of my projects are on medical images, so I lately understand this, it's, it's the kind of data distributions that create a lot of problems. The first problem is, of course, small data sets. And, I mean, most of the community cries about that, so there's nothing we can do as in it's it's much of, more of a physical effort. But in terms of the diversity, for natural images, we could have multiple classes, I mean, thousands of classes, but for medical images, it's hard to create those uh, naturally, because can create those artificially. 
So I think, yeah, I, I totally agree. There is a kind of a much more distinctive difference between uh, doing these uh, experiments on natural images versus medical ones. But but this brings me to an interesting question is uh, maybe this is a maybe very naive question and this this relates to a, uh, a work that you earlier published on transfer learning and understanding the behind the scenes of transfer learning is uh, I wanted to clarify or maybe just ask this question is most of the people uh, have this concern that if we, if we are using transfer learning on large scale data sets where the pre-training happens on a very huge data set versus the uh, fine tuning happens on a very smaller data set, then transfer learning cannot have real much benefits because the model is huge and the fine tuning doesn't really help because it's a small data set and hence uh, the fine tuning efforts are very small. Versus there is also a concern that you cannot use small models because transfer learning is not really uh, provable in terms of uh, small models. We are not trying to incorporate the benefits of transfer learning in small models. So I wanted to understand because this feels like an intuition, but we don't have a theoretical understanding that, hey, if this is actually true. And I'm curious if you have come across some works or maybe have you explored in one of your, few of your works that talks to more about these things, but much more uh, in a guaranteed fashion that, hey, this is actually true or false. Right. So yeah, speaking of that, um, our earlier work on understand uh, on what is being transferred in transfer learning, we found a couple of really interesting things. Um, there, we look at models that are pre-trained on ImageNet and look at like um, natural, um, like medical images and also different um, variation of um, natural images. And one thing that we see is in class of functions, pre-training is essentially helping in the sense that it is putting your um, model in a good basin in lost landscape so that Essentially, it would it helps the optimization getting better when we are doing fine tuning. So that's that's where it helps. Of course, as you keep increasing the size of your target or downstream task, then our colleagues have shown that the effect of transfer learning is gradually diminishes. So if you have enough data, you really don't need to pre-train. But back to the cases that we don't have enough data. So I think I wouldn't discard transfer learning because as we also showed in our paper, it really helps the network understand these lower level features that we know um, that would like help capture the edges and like texture and so on. So that would be beneficial. The part that um, we wanna make sure is that, as we also explained in the paper, the top layers are really specific to um, the task that it's pre-trained to, and they may or may not be useful for downstream tasks. So one thing we could do is to focus on fine-tuning those layers. And also like in few shot setting, we, when we discard the head and we put uh, a new head on it, we do essentially train the head. So I wouldn't completely dismiss transfer learning. I think it helps bias the model in a, in a way that helps optimization. However, we should always keep uh, pushing on having a really good fine-tuned model with as much diverse data as possible, in addition to working on um, improving our fine-tuning methods so that we could essentially help the network get closer to what we really intended for, as opposed to just staying in a place that is more um, specialized toward the, net, uh, toward the data set that it was um, uh, pre-trained on. So we, as a community, we still have work to do, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is actually very interesting because when I was trying to uh, do a kind of a homework behind asking questions for you is uh, these kind of papers actually our publications, I would say, re really help us understand the uh, getting a confidence on these models or these techniques, I would say rather. And uh, for, like surprisingly enough, I think one of the last uh, speakers that I had, she also she's also from Google Brain and she worked on the understanding of transformer models versus CNNs and similar questions has arise. And like you said, this community has to do a lot of work and this this brings me to a question is to uh we understand these kind of like this is i think very initial works on understanding and proving theoretical guarantees in terms of longer context where do you see as in what kind of benefits that you can ideally imagine or dream of while people are working on theory of uh, machine learning techniques what kind of benefits we can as in as the overall community can get like what 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 do you envision this uh this domain of research to be like. Right, so I think 
um, we have uh, we've been working on showing the community what are the things that are missing and where we are failing. So, for example, we looked into failure modes of out of distribution generalization, and out of distribution generalization is essentially what we need because you always train on some data that's going to change some way or the other when you test it. So, I think we like understanding deep learning essentially helps us see our failure modes and where we're missing, but also give us direction like this um, work that I mentioned that these are the things that we're missing. So let's take a step back and look where we're going and uh, make sure that there, we are we take care of the failure modes, but we also improve our methods. So uh, one example that I have, which is one of my favorite papers is that back, from back when I started at Brain. So that was the time that ResNets were like really big thing and we, and if you wanted to regularize them, you had this giant four-dimensional tensor and good luck taking SPD on that. So there was, people would get would get really stuck on that. Like people were using GANs, they wanted to regularize them or they wanted to solve inverse problems. And this regularization was something that was missing. So with my colleagues, we did some mathematical analysis of CNN. And because of the shape of, shape of convolution function, we could actually simplify this to a problem which is essentially two lines of Python code, and that's it. It gives you all the singular values, and now you could regularize. And even at Google's scale, it made this made a huge difference of being able to take those SPDs and regularize versus not doing that. And that essentially enabled a lot of follow-up works, a lot of um, places that their people were stuck in improving their models or getting better performance or faster performance. That essentially opened the gate to a lot of uh, enabling people to do a lot of follow-up work, which was really exciting. So I think that's another aspect that uh, these investigations would essentially help us. And also helping us going beyond just pattern recognition and do more reasoning. And like, can we can we probe, first of all, how much network is reasoning and memorize versus memorizing, but also can we enable the network to do that? Can we add these capabilities to our network? So, and that's something that I'm really excited about. Nice, nice. Yo, yeah, no, that, that is very interesting. And and I'm curious, have you have you had uh, an exploration of comparing uh, vision transformers versus convolutions? Let's say ResNet, I think ResNet is, is kind of a benchmark, but we can pick up any ones. I'm curious if you had any under like any kind of observations or understandings behind the working of vision transformers. I think it came out of uh, Google research uh, sometime back, like very recently. I'm curious uh, because uh, the, the reason I ask this question is uh, these results were published on a huge data set that not a lot of people have the opportunity to work on or at least try those uh, things. So it's hard to compare uh, Apple to Apple. But uh, I'm curious, have you had the chance or at least uh, some kind of observation from others work is how, like, can we can we rely on vision transformers? Is it something a paradigm shift or is it is it something just uh, parallel to ResNet? Can they really be replacing convolutions or are they just uh, an alternative thing that people can try on? Uh, and, and and again, this question comes from a theoretical understanding. Of course, uh, it could be just a luck yeah. that the vision transformers are working well on ImageNet dataset. But do we have any kind of theoretical understanding behind the working? So that's a really good question. And I think we have not converged as a community on yes or no in the sense that, so there is this recent work from my colleagues in Brain that they think they compare um, the represent, they compare them at the representation level. And this seems like, okay, representation seems to be similar. However, there is other, another work from a group of uh, folks that look on cheer improving and they see that, um, they are doing uh, like essentially the seek to seek models are really doing a good job compared to ResNets. So, and there, and I, I'm aware of some ongoing work on really trying to look into these, um, these two class of models. So I think that's something that I'm that I don't have a definite answer yet. And I'm excited that people are working on this. And I think it's, um, good that like this line of uh, transformers is really doing a lot of um, great um, improvement in terms of different applications. Right, right, right. And um, uh, in, in terms of, I think we, we also touched, I think you you mentioned a few of the limitations that deep learning currently has, as in not from a theory perspective, but the overall topic. But uh, we have local extreme, local versus extreme generalizations. And we, we all, this is a known fact that deep learning doesn't generalize as well as humans do on any kind of decision-making process. But uh, do you, like, 
is there a relation between causal reasoning uh, between uh, causal is in, in any way causal reasoning related to generalization uh, and if it is uh, can we understand how i know this is a very open ended question because again the idea of causal reasoning is not very well technically uh, defined but it's an active area of interest a lot of people try to understand i'm i'm curious from a theory like person who who tries to understand things from a fundamental level is there a way like do we actually see any kind of traces that we can learn about causal reasoning of a model in in future of course I think that's a really good question. Of course, causal reasoning is also a form of a generalization. So essentially, if we're thinking like this the really small notion of generalization that I talked about, which is catch the pattern on training data and using on test data, when we do causal reasoning, is re- the hope is to capture this causal relationship that is that is um, leading to this. So and even if you think about reasoning as a general you're essentially learning a specific function and you're generalizing your class function so everything is generalization essentially and i think um as we as we are as we are able to go beyond pattern recognition to capturing different functions and also like different causal relationship is where we're actually uh, moving forward in extending the use of um, deep learning and machine learning as a as a whole to more complicated tasks and more exciting tasks and getting close to um what we think like humans are doing <laughs> which is a philosophical thing by itself but <laughs> yeah um and even like speaking of humans i think one other area that i think is very interesting is um that sometimes we um don't think about it as much is curriculum learning even as humans there we have a sequence of uh, things that we are exposed to so that we learn and um and another thing that i'm thinking about in terms of when we have these giant models is that like the way that we are um showing the data to the model could also play a role and that could be something that would help us to learn more sophisticated functions and go beyond pattern recognition yeah yeah i i really like that idea yeah definitely and and and, and i'll choose this topic to segue to a, a slightly different topic that is outside related to your research topic and much more focusing on you as a researcher uh like most of the people who are listening to this podcast are mostly uh, masters or graduate students or people who are generally interested in the research aspect of machine learning i wanted to ask as you have you have spent a great deal of time as a student who is working on academic projects um uh, the drill of being a phd student postdoctoral student who who is working on projects improving performance is publishing work and the whole drill i wanted to learn like what kind of differences do you see in le- like being a researcher in academia as a student or postdoctoral fellow versus um are uh, being in like in, in 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 a big industry who works on scale as in what kind of uh, what kind of things have you learned the the way about research in computer science while you were a student versus academia what kind of challenges that you uh, saw that were interesting and that made you learn new things about research so i think the time that i was a student was a little bit different era compared to now which <laughs> is a good thing because i think right now there's so many podcasts and a lot of um blogs and like a lot of online resources that like you see the world as is if you try i earlier there was definitely the community was a smaller and twitter wasn't the thing so you wouldn't go write about okay this is my new paper so people would know i remember we would when we had a paper we would just send it to as many professors that we had like, could you give me a feedback so it was a different era but um i'm glad that as a community we've grown this much i think um as a student there is especially if you're not, um if like you're not part of a like giant lab that has like i don't know 30 students or a university that has so many people in machine learning is that sometimes you realize that okay your resources are limited you really need to focus on uh something that you could do um alone with your advisor versus um now i i feel i can really think figure because i have to him of people i have so many collaborators and there's so many people excited to working together so i could really um broaden broaden the horizon so i think that's one thing but one thing that definitely helps you during your phd process is that you really learn to because your resources are limited you learn to prioritize okay what is the most important or coolest problem that i want to solve and i want and you become independent you are like okay this is my research agenda i really need to get it to finish line which is my phd thesis um and of course you learn to 
grow a thicker skin <laughs> because <laughs> there's so many challenges, but that all those uh, personality traits come to help you when you get into the bigger world. And, um, and life never gets easier, but it just gets more um, complicated or exciting or whatever we call it. So all those personality traits and all those um, um, essentially persistence that you learn during your PhD comes to your help. Um, and I think like as a PhD student, what I suggest people do is definitely learn the foundations, learn the basics, because the type of problems you work during your PhD and after your PhD might slightly change. But if you have the tools, if you know, if you know the foundation and also like train yourself to do critical thinking, in addition to have an open mind, that's something that would serve you along the way. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I take all of these advices very nicely. But uh, one of, uh, just to comment on the first thing, like, do you like uh, you, you started off by saying like initially when we didn't have that much amount of social media and people were just in the initial stages for machine learning. But an, an honest comment on that is like nowadays it's like an overwhelming response. Like every day you wake up that people are publishing. Do you feel overwhelmed by keeping up with the progress in these fields? Like, let's say, even if you pick up any kind of basic computer vision domain or medical imaging, um, language processing, don't you feel uh, a bit overwhelmed? Okay, I, I just need to read papers. Like, like this was initially my thought when I when I started in my undergrad. This was initial stage, and I was just being a naive, interested person in research. I felt, okay, I can cope up. But nowadays, it's, it's just too hard to uh, keep following even one person's work. So uh, do you also see it the same way? Or do you have any kind of techniques that has helped you <laughs> to uh, at least, I would say, narrow down these bombardment of research works on archive? <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And I definitely acknowledge that it can be overwhelming. Um, and um, I think FOMO is a real thing in our field because everyone is publishing <laughs> a lot of things and like field is moving forward really fast. Um, and that is the way I cope with it is like think about prioritization, pri priorities and like what makes sense to me and and really acknowledge that, okay, as a human being, there's this much hours in the day and I really need to take care of more mental health. So there should be a balance in there. We call it work-life balance or balance between different aspects of your life. And then, yeah. And then I said, okay, it's okay. I don't need to know everything. And, um, and there are ways we could catch up with things, but not like read all the papers. Um, so even like, uh, although Twitter can be overwhelming, but also like it can give you, like, I really like it that recently, instead of people just saying, I'm excited to share this paper here's the link, go read it. They give you like a snippet. So, okay, this is, these are the main questions that we thought about. And this is the main finding. So in that sense, it helps. Um, but yeah, we did, the FOMO is real and we really need to <laughs> prioritize and be okay with letting go of some things and not be expert in everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes it sense. It also makes it exciting because once you talk to others that like they're specialized in something else and you can have some discussion and like, okay, what is new in your field? and so be okay with that and be okay with not knowing everything. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. And 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 uh, one other question I wanted to ask is like, because you have been on both the sides of research now, being a student versus now a successful uh, researcher at Google. So in terms of your, uh, if you were to reflect back, uh, and I think you would have struggled with defining your thesis as in like, what do you want to work on? What really interests you versus what you can actually do so that you can thrive uh, into the research world? If you look back and if you were to advise someone, what do you really count for a good thesis? As in, like, how would you advise someone that you can say that, hey, at least if you have this many check marks, then that actually counts for a good thesis. And we are not being a very optimistic that, hey, just work on something that interests you. That's a very vague definition. But would yeah. you have any three or three or four uh, things that you would advise a PhD student to consider so that he or she can have a good thesis direction? Yeah, I think one of the favorite things that I have, and I'm quoting my friend Percy Liang, is that if you see everyone is running, uh, following it, well, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> I really like the way he puts it. Um, yeah, I think I I, I want to say that there's so many low-hanging fruits, but who cares if you write like 40 papers of low-hanging fruits? If you really, if you really want to um, see if you've done a really good work is, did you take a step back and 
look at what people are doing and maybe propose a new angle or propose a new idea or even question, hey, this is this, everyone is saying this, but maybe this is wrong. So do, those are my favorite pieces. And I think in order to do that, it would be really good to have community of um, people who are more senior than you. And like, you don't need to meet with them every week, but like get feedback from people and also be keep an open mind, not think about, okay, this person is the best person, so I'm just going to fo- follow what they're saying. Just keep an open mind, look at what other people are saying. Of course, your interest makes the space smaller, but in there, it's like, what are the type of questions that people are not asking? What is the direction that I can come in? Where, where does my strengths help me? And also, I'll always look out for opportunities to learn new things. And I think one thing, one advice that they have, which I can't emphasize it enough, is that have mentors. Go talk to people who say, okay, this is my research agenda. This is what I'm thinking about. What is your what is your feedback? Even if it's just a 30-minute chat, that would definitely be helpful. And um, and don't shy away from asking people questions. I think a lot of PhD students, um, myself included for a while, is like, you're like, okay, this person is so senior. How do I approach them? Just approach them. What's, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? So definitely ask for feedback and also keep an open mind and also don't look for low-hanging fruits. Um, and another thing that I want to mention is that definitely be, work on having this capability that if you have an idea, you could verify it, even if it's for something small, even if the model that you're looking at is a small. Um, just get in there, try out ideas, think about things. If it's you're improving, try to do things yourself. Just as you were mentioning, there's so many papers coming up. If you just read too many papers, then you're paralyzed. You're like, okay, because you can't follow everything. So there, you need to really have some time scheduled for, okay, let's take a step back. Let's think about problem myself. What does my voice say? What, how do I think about this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can completely relate to this. And uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I can understand the depth behind these advices. So yeah, this is very useful. And this is something I have realized for my, uh, my projects also. And this was uh, along the lines of discussing with my other friends, other people that I normally talk to. And that is a major misconception that most of the people when they get into the PhD program is they, they're trying to invent something, but it doesn't have to be always like, you know, like reinventing the whole wheel, thinking out of the box, but it's like exactly. understanding it's, it's more of a it's more of understanding the research problem and the techniques. And one thing that I I, I think I, I wrote it down few 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 time back is like uh make, like compiling a model and running the model is the least thing you need to do as a CS research student because that's that's what my basic understanding was that majority of the time I would be just writing code, programming, and writing deep learning models. But I think that's something that what happens before training the model and after training the model that really accounts for the. Uh, research and i think that's that's where the learning happens as a as a phd student so yeah yeah it, it's it's something that what you said about persistence i think that relates best into these two buckets so yeah this this makes a lot of sense and yeah uh, and just, i think one last yeah sorry and one last so, thing i wanted to mention talking about persistence and resilience that's really important and phd time graduate school time is something there's a time that there's a lot of stresses there's a lot of unknowns so really know that you're not alone if you're struggling with it and also get help in that sense as well. Mental health is really important and we don't talk about it enough, but that's something that we really need to take care of ourselves um, and definitely get help with that. However kind of help makes sense for uh, someone. So I think that's another thing that I want. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a very important point. I really love that. And um, uh, just one last question before we uh, before we end off is taking one other step back as in like moving even from the research domain is, do you have any piece of advice for people? Because this question I do get uh, when I when, when I was in my master's and people uh, would reach out out of these podcasts and comments is um, they are in the domain of they are exploring deep learning. They are learning about deep learning that what deep learning stands for, what machine learning can achieve. They are interested by it, intrigued by it, but they are confused as in like, do they want, do they really want to make them as a career or maybe develop themselves into the research domain they are mostly I, I think even i was along those lines i was pretty much scared that hey i won't be able to keep up with these many programming and mathematical challenges do you have any piece of advice who are in that stage they are trying to explore the uh, i would say 
the creamy creamy applications of deep learning they're intrigued by it but they are not they are pretty much confused if deep learning is something that they uh, are really interested do you have any piece of advice uh, along the lines when you decided to pursue deep learning as a serious research topic do you have any advice for those people right i think that's a good question are we talking about people who are going to do phd or are we thinking about people who want to do, go to the industry of deep learning which is implementing it for different companies i think we can segue into yeah i think we can segue into that but but i think the uh, these are the people who recently discovered that they are maybe in the sophomores or freshman year of the college they discovered hey this is something interesting that you can part of uh, as a computer science student and they are not really sure if like again that would be a segue of part two question meaning if they want to go into the industry and hence develop their career or go into the industry and hence develop their career which would be i think a different question but uh, this really relates to the people who have just discovered uh, deep learning right i think so for me my taking a lot of steps back before even i got into <laughs> deep learning what i was excited about was solving puzzles and um and i think like so as i was mentioning my background is ml theory i was doing optimization convex optimization in high dimensional space then non convex optimization then i got into deep learning i think really finding what is what makes sense to you and there and along this path of course there's been so many subfields that i was like ah oh, this is not for me i'm not interested um really thinking about what makes sense to you and also i think right now there's no lack of having even like in sophomore days there's so many professors in universities say, hey i want to get a project to see how does this feel to try it for yourself and also but ask other people i mean i do a lot of mentoring and sometimes i realize when someone asks me what does research entail i they want to get into research and then they ask me what does research entail and then they're like oh my god you write this much and you'll have deadlines and you'll have to wait for it <laughs> oh that doesn't sound exciting so really like when you hear something that it seems shiny and nice get into the details does is this for you or not and there's so many opportunities to try things out like get internship at 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 um industry or getting internship in academia see what makes sense to you because there's a lot of opportunities out there and just finding out what makes sense to you and what is exciting not on paper or on social media but actually what does it mean day to day if i'm doing this if i'm investigating this i think that's that's really helps in making a decision for each person yeah 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 i i completely second that and resonate that i i i love that advice but um yeah i think that's all i have uh, i had for this particular podcast and uh, i'll be i'll be linking few of the papers that we discussed today so I, i'll be linking those links in the comment section or in the description section so that people who are interested they can check out and i'll, I'll also link I'll, i'll leave a link to your twitter account so that i think you're pretty uh, active over there publishing some of like some of the works and like you said uh, that's the easiest way people can uh, be updated to some of the research works that people publish so i'll be linking that but apart from that i hope this was useful for people who are listening and learning more about your work and especially the idea of theory of machine learning and i hope they get inspired they get interested into this topic and this field progresses but uh, apart from that thanks thanks a lot for um, doing this i i know you had a bad health last week so thanks a lot for still putting up and uh yeah hope this is this was useful yeah thank you for having me i very much enjoyed chatting with you thank thanks. you bye. thank you have a nice weekend bye bye you too bye